What does missions in Ethiopia have in common with preaching the gospel in front of abortion clinics in the U.S.? If there's no verbal proclamation, then it's not evangelism. It's necessary. We want the gospel to be proclaimed. I mean, sometimes we have 10 seconds, sometimes 30 seconds, but we want to proclaim the hope that is in Christ and point out the sin that they're in, but they don't have to remain there because of the free offer of forgiveness and the gospel to put truth before them. Anthony Mathenia today on the Missions Podcast. Welcome to the Missions Podcast, the show that explores your hard questions on missions, theology, and practice to help goers think and thinkers go. I'm Alex Kochman, Director of Advancement and Mobilization for ABWE International. And today I am without Scott Dunford. Normally we would have Scott Dunford here on the show, but I'm flying solo today. And so Scott, if you're listening, we miss you today. We've had some scheduling difficulties in trying to get our next guest on the line And uh, part of that has to do with the fact that a flu came through my household. And let me tell you, boy, the flu this year has been unbearable. (laughs) And I had a little bit of brain fog and scheduling and coming out of that. And so we're just trying to figure out getting all of our guests scheduled after I had to take a little bit of time off of work. But we're thankful to our next guest for hanging in there and allowing us to reschedule him. And we're excited to have this conversation today about an important topic and one that might be a little controversial. But before we dive into that, one of the things that we wanted to remind all of our listeners is is not only to be sharing this episode and subscribing and rating the show, which helps us get our content in front of more people, but also we would love any opportunity that we can get to interact with you in person. And so if you're planning on coming to Together for the Gospel this year in Louisville in April, We would love to have you at our next event, the missions luncheon and panel that we're going to be having debating the issue of who are the nations. We'll uh, share a little bit more information about that when we get into the commercial break. But my guest today is Anthony Mathenia. Anthony is a pastor. He's also worked in ministry in a number of different areas. I don't want to take too much of his thunder away um, and allow him to introduce himself. We just want to cover the topic of suffering and the role that it plays in the life of a missionary and how that can be clarifying for us. There's times that that opens our eyes to see not only how God's working behind the scenes, but to contrast that with the pragmatic methods and tools that we tend to rely on. And so we want to spend some time talking about that, and then we'll shift gears and talk a little bit about Anthony's current ministry. Anthony, please introduce yourself and tell us who you are, what you're doing, and then I'd love to dive deeper into your story. Sure. Yeah, thanks for having me, Alex. Uh, it was good to meet you a few weeks ago when I was driving through Pennsylvania and had the opportunity to grab a cup of coffee with you. Mm. And thanks for the opportunity to be on today uh, to talk about these things. Mm. Um, I pastor Christ Church in Radford, Virginia, and I've been doing that for almost nine years now. Married my wife, Hannah, and we have six kids, number seven on the way, due in August of this year. Uh, I grew up in, thanks. I grew up in a Southern Baptist household, uh, going to a typical kind of run of the mill, Southern Baptist country church and no doubt heard the gospel uh, a number of times in that church, made a profession of faith at a young age, uh, proved it false by the choices that I made in latter high school and through college. But God was merciful and saved me not long after uh, finishing up my studies at university when I was working in the mental health field 
And almost immediately, I had a desire for ministry, a desire to tell others what had happened to me and uh, explain to them about the hope that was in me and that they too could receive this forgiveness of sins and started taking some seminary classes and reaching out to people who had ministry opportunities. And one thing led to another. I ended up in Ethiopia the next summer after being converted. I had already started taking some seminary classes part-time and lived with an Ethiopian family for the better part of the summer of the year 2000 and fell in love with everything about the country while at the same time having a, a real desire to serve there, recognizing the need uh, and also noticing that I didn't really have what I needed to um, help uh, with regard to what was needed there on the ground. So I came back to the States after that trip and um, ended up getting married the next year and went on staff at a church and started seminary full time. And in my mind, I was doing the necessary preparation to spend the rest of my life as a missionary in Ethiopia, giving myself to the Ethiopian mm. people and to the church there. Um, I ended up, I did end up moving to Ethiopia in 2005, um, pretty much sold everything that I owned here and transitioned there. At that time, it was wife and young daughter, who was actually Ethiopian, adopted from Ethiopia. So she was 18, 20 months at the time. And mm -hmm. we landed in Ethiopia and began ministering, working with a small organization that supported um, national missionaries, so Ethiopians. And I was meeting with them, praying with them, teaching, preaching in the churches, visiting their churches, worshiping with them on the Lord's Day. And doing a lot of language study, primarily, that's where a lot of the time was given. But there was uh, a bit of a frustration uh, with that work um, because there was an expectation within the organization that I was connected with to dumb down everything as if the Ethiopians or the natives weren't actually able to grasp all the deep things of scripture. So everything needed to be uh, doctrine basically was expected to be kind of thrown out the window and, and left by the wayside on the way across the Atlantic to do this mission work. Mm. Um, so the yeah. entire board, everybody that was supportive of me going was uh, very reformed and solid theologically on paper. Uh, but there was no expectation of that being applied or working itself out in the lives of the ministers there, their families and the churches. <clears throat> and so that, that caused a few headaches, as you might imagine, um, because I, I felt like I was trying to do something and didn't have the support of anyone uh, really who had sent mm. me over to do that work. Uh, the local church that I had come out of however, was very supportive and, and, and very encouraging to continue doing it. And after some time, I actually broke away from that organization and was just connected to the local church because they were very much committed to us um, promoting the whole counsel of God. Mm. with regard to the mission work. Can I cut in there real quick sure and thing. interrupt? And, you know, just so that people know who they're talking to as, as well, you are um, very connected, intimately connected with Heart Cry Missionary Society. And I'll let you share a little bit more about uh, your role with them in a moment. Um, but before you explain that too, wh what are you talking about seeing that that was dumped down? Um, you know, specifically, I don't know if you can give any examples of that or. Yeah, I, primarily in the area of soteriology. 
Um, mm. I mean, that that's where, uh, in a very real way, that's where the rubber meets the road with regard to the gospel. And yeah. so not being willing to press the particular issues with regard to Christ coming to save sinners, you know, who Christ is and what he came to do and what he actually accomplished on the cross and who it is that saves us, whether it's all God and his mercy and love and grace or whether we play some part, um, those doctrines that as Reformed Christians, we love uh, just weren't being emphasized or even expected mm-hmm. that everything, as long as it, it was a very, very big tent um, evangelical world. And, mm-hmm. and that's even using evangelical more loosely than I would prefer. Yeah. Okay. So walk us out what happened from there. So you went independent, you went through your local church and uh, continued ministering in Ethiopia at that point? Yes. When that happened, I ended up partnering with a local denomination on the ground there in Ethiopia, which was actually started by the Southern Baptist back during the famine in Ethiopia during the 80s. And so I partnered with that denomination and began training ministers and uh, want to be church planters doing systematic theology, modular style. They would kind of all come into the capital city of Addis Ababa for a couple of weeks and we would do intensive uh, theological training, working through a full systemat over the course of a couple of years was the plan that we had set out together. Mm. Now, real quick too, just tell us the need in Ethiopia, because I think a lot of people think, wait a second, isn't this a place where Christian community has existed from the earliest days of the gospel? So is that a place that you would still characterize as really, really unpenetrated, unreached by the gospel? And what is the state of need there that prompted you to go there? Yeah, depending on what statistics you look at, um, some say, about 85% of the country or the population remains unevangelized. Um, Mm. And the reason for that is because most people look and see the Ethiopian Orthodox Church is very prevalent there. It's the national religion. However, it's, it's not biblical Christianity. So these people are, they grow up, they're born into an Ethiopian Orthodox family, um, baptized as babies, by immersion oftentimes, interestingly mm-hmm. enough. Hmm. But, and so that's it. You're baptized into the church and you're good. And that's the end of it. It very much is baptismal regeneration as an infant. And there's a little bit of head nodding here and there to some of the cultural expectations with regard to um, that cultural religion. But it's a religion that's separated from Christ. It's Christ plus. I mean, they're not going to deny Christ, but they're going to give a lot of attention and worship and adoration to Mary and even all of the other saints. So a a huge portion of the uh, population, um, more than half, would claim to be Ethiopian Orthodox, Mm -hmm. and therefore they are without the true gospel. Also, in the past decade, Islam is on a rapid uh, rise there. I mean, if you know where Ethiopia is in the Horn of Africa in the northeast part, it's surrounded by uh, Muslim countries, and they're continuing to come and and growing really fast, um, about five times faster than any other religion um, in the country. Well, and it's interesting that you say that one of the issues that you had to single out uh, as as far as being important to preach and not to water down or dumb down at all is issues of soteriology, issues of salvation, issues of defining the gospel. Because I think when you're in a context where there is some Christian presence already, 
you're not going to necessarily receive resistance when you start saying, hey, there's this guy named Jesus. That concept is going to be somewhat understood. It's when you get more specific than that and saying you are completely unable to save yourself. You're born dead in sin. You're, you're totally depraved and only an act of God in uh, not only sending a savior to atone for your sins, to die and rise and rule and reign for sinners, uh, but also that you're dependent on the spirit of God to open your heart because your heart is so hostile against the holy God uh, that you're not going to even uh, choose to repent and surrender before him unless he touches your heart in some way. And so is that part of what drives you to in recognizing, yeah, there's a Christian presence, but uh, there's there's a fullness of gospel witness that's needed there that we can't be fuzzy about. Absolutely. And in fact, within Ethiopia, the persecution of the real Christians in Ethiopia is mostly from the Orthodox Church and not from the Muslims. Well, that's it. It, I mean, it makes, I think it makes sense in our day as we look and see how divided the church is in the West and recognizing that those of us who take the Bible literally and, and seriously and want to preach the gospel, including all of its jagged edges, we're the ones who are in the minority. And so that's not too surprising. But so you continued ministering in Ethiopia. And um, it's my understanding, based on our conversation, um, that uh, the Lord had other plans for you. And um your time of ministry was interrupted, uh, shall we say. And so can you, can you walk us through that, uh, that story? Yes. We, after a couple of years, um, we had to transition back home to renew visas. And during that process, we're also facilitating another adoption. And uh, mm-hmm. it was during one of those trips home that uh, the family, other than myself, that's wife at the time and two kids were in a car wreck. And my wife was killed uh, as a result of the injury sustained in that wreck. Um, the kids ended up being okay. That's now my 16 and 12 year old that I have. They were mm-hmm. a baby and a four year old at the time. Um, Mm. so that, yeah, really changed everything with regard to the direction, the, the love for the Ethiopian people was still there. Obviously the only ministry I had and everything I owned was in Ethiopia. Uh, however, it didn't make a lot of sense for me to live as a single dad caring for the kids 24 seven in Ethiopia and not actually be able to serve. So that Mm. brought me and, you know, along with the kids, obviously back to the States and, uh, back to the home church that we had been sent out of and began ministering there and serving there, continued making trips back and forth to Ethiopia and just praying through and seeking the Lord with regard to what the next phase of life would look like. Well, what did that, what did that do to your relationship with the Lord? I mean, there, there had to have been a period of, um, not necessarily questioning. Maybe, maybe there was, but I mean, it, it's certainly a point at least where recognizing the sovereignty of God, you know, on paper, that's a great thing to talk about, uh, especially with salvation. Uh, but then you experience it there um, in, a, in a way that's incredibly personal. Um, what, what was the discouragement? Like, was there the temptation to think, man, I'm not being faithful to the Lord if I don't stay in Ethiopia? Was there any guilt associated with that decision to, to shift directions? I don't think that I ever felt that way. My heart went out to them because I wanted to be there and I wanted to to minister to them. But I also recognized the obligation that I had to my children. Mm. And I I had already dealt in my heart uh, with this tug that I had felt between pastoring in the U.S. and serving overseas and 
attempting to figure out, okay, where is my calling? And finally coming to the conclusion that my calling is to Christ and I can honor him wherever I am, whatever I'm doing. Mm. And because I had already worked through those issues in my own mind and heart, um, it, it really, and I know this has nothing to do with me and everything to do with the mercy of God during those days. He very much just carried me through that time and allowed me to remain firm in my mind and in my heart with regard to who he was and what his plans for me were, that they were good, that they were meant for good and not for evil, that he promised to do me good, both me and my children from the new covenant promises of Jeremiah. They were very real and fresh to me. And I just reminded myself, it doesn't matter what it feels like. It doesn't matter if it feels like it's not good. It is good because he Mm -hmm. is good. And this is what he's promised in his word to his children. Amen. Amen. Uh, that's an important lesson and I uh, want to dive deeper, but uh, we do want to take a quick break and we'll come right back with Anthony Mathenia. The Missions Podcast is back at T4G and we're going big. If you'll be in Louisville on April 15th, join us at the Ice House, half a mile from the Yum Center for the local church and the nations, a special live recording of the Missions Podcast with an expert panel. Yeah, guests that you're familiar with, guests that we've had in the show like Zane Pratt, Darren Carlson, Brooks Buser, Paul Davis, John Clausen, and George Collins will join us to answer when Jesus said to disciple all the nations, what did he mean by that? Did he mean countries or people groups or languages and making it practical what can ordinary churches do about that how we answer can make or break our strategies it'll be riveting edifying and we mentioned it's the cheapest lunch in town yeah so grab your spot and your food for just ten dollars go to missionspodcast.com slash t4g or follow the link in the show notes and if you're not signed up yet for t4g our partner live global use the code t4g20 live global 10 off to receive ten dollars off your t4g registration Go into the show notes to see exactly how that's spelled. That's T4G20 Live Global 10 off. You get $10 off your registration and we'd love to see you there. Absolutely. So join us and we'll see you in Louisville on April 15th at T4G. A special message from ABWE President Paul Davis. ABWE missionaries are coming beside the lost and the hurting around the world. And through the Global Gospel Fund, they're pulling people from the darkness and training them as leaders. They're planting churches, and they're even beginning their own missions movements. You may already support one ABWE missionary. Would you consider a gift to the Global Gospel Fund to support all 1,000 of our missionaries? Thank you for that. Become a partner today at abwe.org slash global gospel fund. Training is the biggest common denominator in people who make it through the first two years and people who don't. Brooks Buser, president of Radius International. Radius is a 10-month intensive training school that trains students who are going to church plants among the last 3,100 unreached groups left in the world. The driving burden is really to see every language group reached with a really strong, lasting New Testament church. Okay, so why should someone attend Radius International? I would say someone should attend radius because we see missionaries that don't make it because they weren't expecting the challenges that were coming at them 
everyone's going to hit hurdles. It's what you do when you hit those hurdles. If you've had those challenges at Radius, you get to see those challenges. You get to experience some of them in the environment in Tijuana. And you also have capable staff that have a background and can guide you through a lot of those hurdles. And so you tend to do much better. I'm one of the team leaders. He says there's just something different about Radius graduates. They understand and they get through things a lot faster and they do better on the field when the hard times come. What's your final challenge? Go to radiusinternational.org, radiusinternational.org. And we're back. And Anthony, uh, now that you've described a little bit about your background in ministry, in cross-cultural ministry in Ethiopia, and uh, coming back to the States and raising your children after the passing of your wife, uh, this last uh, decade, I guess, has been sort of a whirlwind for you. Um, So maybe describe what that last decade has been and uh, what you're doing now with Heart Cry Missionary Society, which if our listeners aren't familiar um, with the name Paul Washer, um, that would be the connection there with Heart Cry. Um, You guys as an organization are doing some important work. Yeah, the Lord was... Uh, faithful um, within uh, the next couple of years after coming off the field in Ethiopia, I married my now wife Hannah, and about eighteen months after that, we transitioned to where we live now here in Virginia to put the work that God had given me in Ethiopia alongside Heart Cry Missionary Society. I had met Paul Washer previously and had done some informal partnerships through Conrad and Bayway, who serves. Uh, there yeah. in Lusaka, Zambia. And so I, I knew Paul through that and I talked with him when they were relocating here in Virginia. And so I moved here for that purpose, thinking that I would continue working in missions and at some level, just more stateside and did that. And a church plant kind of blossomed out of that. And I ended up at the helm of the church and have been pastoring now nine years here ever since we established that church in early 2011 and have continued to uh, travel around the world, taking advantage of the opportunities as a result of HeartCry supporting close to 250 missionaries around the world in uh, 40-something countries. It gives a lot of opportunity to remain active in the mission field. I mentioned the difficulty of kind of deciding of whether I was called to serve Christ here on American soil or serve overseas. He has blessed me immensely to allow me now to pastor a church where heart cry is based. And so it's just a constant commitment to, um, local evangelism efforts on college campuses at the abortion clinic at a methadone clinic, um, and at detention centers, as well as being committed to seeing the gospel expand, uh, all around the globe in a very real way. It's the best of both worlds. It's an opportunity that I wouldn't have been able to draw up had I, dreamed biggest, my biggest dreams about what I wanted out of, out of ministry and life. Mm-hmm. Well, let me double down on, on something that you mentioned, you, you know, there's, uh, obviously a different direction that God has, has given your life now and you're involved in different things than you were in Ethiopia, but obviously the, the common strand is gospel proclamation, right? It's, it's outreach, it's, it's missions, whether it's abroad, uh, or here at home. And we don't want to flatten everything out altogether. We do recognize that, you know, there is an acute need among the unreached. And uh, sometimes we can say, well, let me reach my neighbor. Well, okay, but that's 
different from the, the unreached who have no access to the gospel. And we all recognize that. Um, but at the same time, the real commonality between wh- what I see as your ministry initially and then your ministry now um, is not just saying, yeah, I'm going to live on mission in sort of this general sense, but you are all about explicit gospel proclamation. Um, in your mind, as you look at the missions community, the missions world, you know, does it, does it strike you that there's not a, a commitment of, of missions agencies or missionaries to explicit offensive gospel proclamation, uh, laying people um, at the feet of Christ and, and bring them face to face with the recognition of Christ and Christ crucified and you have to repent and believe in him? Are, are people shying away from that? Is that maybe not the normative means of, of ministry or maybe is the emphasis in ministry a lot more on you know, just, just building relationships and some things that are good, but some things that sometimes fall short of that kind of robust gospel witness. Yes, I think you're right that the assessment of missions in our day is pretty bleak. Uh, and it's disappointing, but not surprising, because we only have the capability of exporting what our local churches are committed to. And unfortunately, Mm -hmm. local churches in our land have been on a a pretty miserable slide with regard to the belief in the gospel and the power of God to change people and the necessity of the proclaimed truth being primary. I mean, those things that you mentioned that most mission agencies are given to, that's what unfortunately most churches in our land Mm -hmm. are given to. And so it's no surprise then that when we send out missionaries that they're committed to doing those kinds of things, to simply establishing relationships and friendships. And certainly that can be part of gospel proclamation, right. but it's not mission. It's not biblical mission. It's not local church work. If the gospel proclamation is not front and center and primary and continuous. Right. And the reason I wanted to double down on that point is because what you're doing now is not vastly different. Um, people might look at ministry in the area of abortion in particular. You guys are out there as a witness, as a voice in front of the abortion mills in Radford. And I want to talk a little bit about that. Um, but what you're doing is, is not, you know, political versus before you were a missionary and now you're involved in, you know, domestic political issues. It's not that sort of a thing that we would bifurcate in that way. What you're doing now, just as you were in Ethiopia now you're bringing the gospel uh, proclaimed with all of its uh, jagged edges, um, front loading the offensive parts, bringing Christ and Christ crucified in front of the abortion mill. And I think it's relevant to this whole string of uh, talking about verbal and proclamational evangelism. Our president, Paul Davis, had a, a, a thread on Twitter today. Um, he, he wrote verbal and proclamational evangelism helps people confront their distorted reality. Verbal and proclamational evangelism blesses people through uniting through through igniting hope. Verbal and proclamational evangelism provides opportunities to pull back curtains of ignorance about our creator. And so there's that important point of um, recognizing that the gospel has to be said out loud with words. So how does that affect what you're doing in front of the abortion mill? Tell us what you're doing in that area of ministry, what that means for you guys. Um, So the story of how that ministry started, Um, but that's different because a lot of the pro-life ministry that we see is more political or it's more sort of common grace, natural revelation arguments. It's not always explicit gospel witness. Right. I think with regard to the Twitter thread you mentioned, we could probably say with some accuracy 
that if there's no verbal proclamation, then it's not evangelism. Yeah. That it's necessary, which is why when we stand in front of the abortion clinics, we want the gospel to be proclaimed. I mean, sometimes we have 10 seconds, sometimes 30 seconds, depending on how fast they get from their car to the front door, depending on which clinic, which of the two clinics we're at. Um, our goal is to engage them and, and have more of a conversation, but sometimes we don't have that opportunity. But we want to proclaim the hope that is in Christ and point out the sin that they're in, but they don't have to remain there because of the free offer of forgiveness in the gospel. There's there's no other way. No one's going to, I mean, they're going in to murder their baby, no one on the inside of that clinic is going to put truth before them. No one's going to offer them any help. So we're there as a last line, an opportunity to say, please don't do this. Please don't heap this condemnation on yourself. Please run to Christ. Hope in him. There is forgiveness. The situation that you're in does not require a sacrifice of convenience in your womb. You can come to Christ. He'll be sufficient. We'll come alongside and help in any way that we can, not just up until birth, but after that, whatever it takes, we're glad to come alongside. If you want a parent, we'll help you do that. If you want to consider adoption, We'll walk through that with you. There are so many other choices other than choosing to snuff out the life of the blessing that God has put in your womb. Well, but uh, but Anthony, I can hear someone saying you can't possibly see any sort of success with such a direct approach in front of an abortion mill. Uh, you know, clearly you're you're being too uh, abrasive, and um, it, it, there's there's no way that that's going to. Uh, have any sort of a effect or an impact on people? What, what's your response? Uh, I pretty much ignore them because we see otherwise. And we also have the scriptures that tell us that it is the verbal proclamation of the gospel that brings hope to people. It's, mm. it's the only hope that they have. And that's so we're seeking to be obedient more than successful. I mean, the success will come. The lives will be changed. The babies will be saved obviously, but our goal is to be faithful to Christ. So let me pull something else out here too. Again, another commonality between the work of a missionary overseas and someone who's doing the very front lines type of mission that you're doing now in front of an abortion clinic um, in Radford in the Roanoke area in Virginia, uh, which is whenever we're dealing with sinners, we're dealing with hostile enemies of God. We're not dealing with people that are neutral. Um, so you had a thing on Twitter today again, too. I'm going going back to the Twitters. <laughs> I'm pulling back out the Twitters. Um, but uh, you had written this. Um, you had a conversation at a clinic. Um, there aren't that many abortions here, someone told you. It's just preventative care. I know the doctor. He's a good guy. Those are all quotes that you were told. Um, and, uh, the response to that you wrote is, but all the patients here admit that they're having abortions and this individual in front of the clinic replied to you and said, um, direct quote, well, they're just black babies anyway. And those people just can't take care of themselves. So you see vitriolic racism from people who are in favor of legal murder of children, um, but, uh, the reason I bring that out is, is to, to address the fact that pro proclaiming the gospel is spiritual warfare, right? You're, you're, you're bringing, uh, the message of Christ as King and Lord, 
uh, to people who are hostile to God, who are hostile to each other, whether it's through racism, through abortion. Um, but but we're we're realizing that that we're not going out onto neutral territory. This whole methodology of just uh, sort of loosely, nicely, creatively inspiring people to consider Jesus as an option for improving their lives. That all sort of presupposes that people are neutral, doesn't it? Yes, certainly. I mean, that conversation happened yesterday between one of our church members and an employee at the clinic, actually, who was denying that that many abortions mm. were happening. Um and it is crucial. It's crucial that we be there and it's crucial that we proclaim the gospel. And there have been some complaints from others who want to be more passive standing on the sidewalk in front of the clinics. But in time, even those people early on who were the naysayers about what we were doing, about being vocal, about calling out, about preaching the gospel, even people out there who don't actually believe the gospel are seeing that our preaching of the gospel at the clinic is being used by God to save babies and to save lives. And that's why we do it. It's a life or death issue. We can't stand mm -hmm. aside and just hope for the best. We have to go and try to save the lives of these people, to save the souls of these people by the preaching of the gospel. We, we have the solution. We have the remedy. You know, no matter what... As you've mentioned, whether we're in Ethiopia among the unreached in a 1040 in the 1040 window or whether we're on the sidewalk in front of an abortion clinic, we have the remedy that lost souls need. We simply proclaim it. And God has promised in the scriptures that he will join the proclaimed word by the power of his spirit and change hearts and lives and families and neighborhoods and villages for his glory. When you're describing the gospel being this powerful thing, um, I wonder if some of our listeners aren't hearing that and thinking, not, not, the, not the gospel I've been taught, not, not the gospel that I've been instructed under or discipled under. It, maybe there's a, a disparity between uh, the way that we talk about what Jesus came to do, who he is, um, the good news, um, and the way that, that you proclaim it, that the, the parts of the gospel message that you would emphasize, I think it's important that we draw that out. We've already talked around it a little bit. We've talked about um, the sovereignty of God, and he has to not only die uh, for sinners and rise in the person of Christ, but also has to change our hearts. But what, what, what exactly is it when you talk about proclaiming the gospel? Okay, I'm in front of an abortion clinic. Um, you know, what, what is that message that you and the members of your church would have for me? Yeah, that you, like us, are sinners, that God created us and he created the world good and with the ability to remain faithful. But we chose sin and we continue to choose sin day in and day out. And it is an offense to him because he's a holy God. And though he had every right to just wipe us away and be done with us forever, out of compassion and pity, he saw fit to implement a plan that he decreed long ago. And he sent his son, a perfect and holy Jesus, into the world who lived. And in, in living, he kept the very laws that he made that we had already broken and were guilty of. He kept them 
pleasing his father in every respect and went to the cross. And on the cross, he suffered in our place. We deserve to die a thousand deaths. We deserve to suffer eternally for offending an infinite God. And Christ, the infinite one, the perfect one, came and took our sin on himself. And God punished our sin on cross, on the cross as he hung there at Calvary in order that we might be robed in his righteousness. He's the perfect one. And his righteousness is credited to all those who believe so that now we have the privilege of standing before him in confidence and with boldness and not just here on earth, but for all time that he, he has a robe of righteousness that never loses its shine or its hue, the old hymn writer says. And God has done this in Christ. And not only did he die, but he was buried and in being buried, he took our sins into the grave with him and carried them as far as the east is from the west. But death couldn't hold him. God raised him up again for our justification, saying, this is my son. Yes, I was pleased in him and I accept his payment for the sins of his people. And now we can be justified. And he was raised again and being raised again, he received gifts among men, namely the Holy Spirit that he poured out there in Acts chapter two at Pentecost. And that spirit that continues to run with rapidity around the world, changing lives for the sake of Christ, taking out our hearts of stone and giving us hearts of flesh in order that we might worship him, in order that our wills that were once bent away from him might be bent in his direction, that we might seek to please him in every respect and honor him with the entirety of our lives. Mm. Boy, amen. And uh, as you share that, um, I'm, I'm also just wondering, you know, if some of our listeners are thinking, Hey, that's an incredible message. That is the only message that can save. Um, but as far as engaging those who are abortion minded, um, let's shift gears a little bit. And not only does your ministry consist of taking this message in front of the abortion clinic, but also um, offering options for care um, for people as well who find themselves with difficult or unexpected pregnancies. So can you just briefly describe how you're bringing the gospel uh, not only to the front lines, uh, but you also have a contingent of people um, on the back lines offering care and support in, in a crisis uh, pregnancy sort of resource center. Yes, and we don't have the that aspect of the ministry up and running, but we have purchased the building immediately next door to Planned Parenthood in Roanoke so that we can establish a clinic there. We are partnering with all of the area pregnancy resource centers in the meantime, while we establish uh, our own uh, resource center right there next door to Planned Parenthood. But we are committed to doing whatever it takes to provide for these women, young men, others that are bringing the ladies there for abortions, whatever they need, we're willing to come alongside and minister to them. And that's huge because I think it's um, important for people to recognize that the only power to change hearts is the gospel itself. Um, but the gospel's changed our hearts, and so we can preach and proclaim it boldly, and we can be there to offer care and support um, as we're calling people to repent. And so there's some important stuff here. Um, but uh, I, I want to bring things together a little bit for a conclusion. And uh, first of all, 
Um, before we shift back to, to think about cross-cultural missions, someone's listening to this and thinking, I would love to see my church um, or maybe um, a, a ministry in my area get started that is also bringing the gospel in front of an abortion mill. Um, how would you encourage that person? Yeah, I would encourage them to check and see if there's anyone ministering there already. Um, not reinventing the wheel would be a good place to start. If there are people going and ministering at the abortion clinic, then go and pray alongside them and, and reach out and take good literature. Uh, there's great things out there available. Most of the literature that we get comes from Ray Comfort's ministry, Living Waters. They have some great pro-life tracks and um, DVDs and mm. things that we try to hand out. We handed out some 500 during last calendar year, and we've just placed another huge order for this year, just trying to put gospel literature, pro-life literature into the hands of the people that are coming and going from the clinic. But it's there's no magic trick. Yeah. I don't know that a lot of training is actually necessary. It's simply getting out there and, and doing it and serving Christ in that way. And then... Because this is the missions podcast, I do want to speak to those who are hearing everything that you're saying and they're serving overseas. Maybe there's somebody listening who has a heart for Ethiopia or another context influenced by Islam in Africa. And how would you how would you encourage someone who really does want to take the gospel um, to the least reached? Because we do look at the environment that's around us and we see so few people that really trust the spirit of God to use the word of God and the simple plain proclamation of the gospel to change hearts. So for people that are interested in missions who are considering a call in that way or already laboring that way, what's your last encouragement to them? Yeah. I, if you're considering a call to missions, if you're considering a call to the ministry, if you're considering becoming a small business owner or working at a factory, mm. the most important decision you can make is to become a member in good standing of a local mm. Bible believing New Testament church. Amen. It's simple. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. I was, <laughs> I was just nodding in agreement there. I think that's just subversive counsel. Go ahead. I, I know where you're coming from, Anthony, but explain uh, to other people like, wait a second, that's not what I expected to hear you say. <laughs> yeah, the putting ourselves alongside like minded believers puts us in a position of the accountability of walking with the Lord, which actually prepares us to do what God has called us to do, to serve him in whatever context we find ourselves in. If you go back to previously in our conversation, the problem with missions around the world today stems directly from the problem with the local church. If we want to see missions improve, we'll give our time and attention to the local church, to its health. And if we want to see better missionaries and better ministers serving here and abroad, it will result in us being more committed members to good, healthy local churches. The church is the only institution that God has established that is eternal. God has established two institutions. One is the family, which is temporal, and the other is the church, which is eternal. And he has determined to grow his kingdom through the church. Mm. I think that if we recognize that, as well as the greatness of the gospel that produces the church, we would save ourselves a host of errors in giving way to pragmatism, 
not only in abortion ministry, but in missions wherever that manifests itself. Anthony Mathenia, um, really grateful for you, your ministry, the camaraderie that we get to have, and uh, pray that uh, we have a chance to have coffee together again soon. And uh, Anthony, how can people follow you and uh, your ministry and hear more from you and Christchurch? Um, it's a good question. I don't actually have all my handles memorized, but just searching my name uh, along with the church, Christ Church, the website is Christ Church with a dot between the R and the C. So C H R I S T C H U R dot C H. So Christ Church with a dot before the last two letters gets you to the website and just searching my name on Twitter. I think it's A Mathenia. Uh, is the the Twitter handle. Um, you can follow a little bit there. I'm not super active. I've been more active in the past couple of weeks because some things have gotten to me a little bit, but I try to not be too active on social media. <laughs> yeah, sometimes uh, when you get a little agitated, you uh, have to take to the Twitters. Desperate times, desperate measures. I, I feel your pain. Anthony Mathenia, at A Mathenia on Twitter. Husband to Hannah, father of seven, pastor of Christ Church Radford. Um, also the founder of Better Than Life Ministries and a servant with Heart Cry Missionary Society. Thank you so much for your time today on the Missions Podcast. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Thanks for listening. To get more content, go to missionspodcast.com or check out abwe.org slash podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. To ask a question or suggest a topic, email alex at missionspodcast.com and we'll see you next time on the Missions Podcast.